I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. I have an incredibly exciting announcement to make. I am taking this very podcast, Conversations of Inspiration, on the road, with six live recordings taking place across the UK. Each episode will take place in a very special venue with a highly inspirational guest, including a speech from me and a chance to ask questions too. The evening will include wonderful entertainment, magical Holly & Co details, a fantastic opportunity to shop small business, drink a delicious tipple or two, mingle with like-minded people, make new friends, and I will ensure you will be thoroughly and utterly inspired. I believe that one conversation has the ability to change the course of your life forever, and I want it to be mine. So don't delay. Get your ticket to Conversations of Inspiration, the podcast live in partnership with NatWest. We'll only be recording six live episodes this year, so make sure you don't miss out. Head to holly.co to get your ticket today. This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm chatting to investor Tom Teichman, founder of Spark Ventures and The Garage Soho. Tom came into my life in 2006 when he wrote the first cheque to invest in Not on the High Street, which came about in the most serendipitous way and a story I recount in our conversation. Because if it wasn't for that initial investment, that initial belief, Not on the High Street wouldn't be here today. Known as Britain's most successful digital startup backer, investing in lastminute.com, Moshi Monsters and Made.com, Tom now runs the latest venture from his Soho townhouse with his co-founder and advertising guru, Sir John Hegarty. Investing and mentoring small businesses with a focus on technology-enabled consumer brands. We spoke about the most incredible journey from arriving in England as a refugee baby, taking inspiration from his entrepreneurial parents to becoming one of the most well-known and respected venture capital investors in Britain. As well as that, we spoke about the importance of intuition and emotion in business, how finding the yin to your yang in a business partner is critical and what he looks for when investing in a business. A person with a spark. Lots of interesting lessons to be learnt from this episode and with a few little backstories of what it took to build Not on the High Street. In true Tom style, his letter to self was read in the back of a taxi as he darted across London onto his next board meeting. Hi, Tom. Well, this is going to be an extremely special podcast. I always had the vision of me interviewing you, sharing your incredible story with the world. And today it is actually happening. Right. 
Hooray! You're so special to me, as you know, and I want to make sure I tell every part of your phenomenal journey correctly and the many years of experience, wisdom and insight and genius that can be shared with our listeners. And mistakes. And mistakes, of course. There haven't been any. (laughs) Not many people know this outside of the business world, but you were the first person responsible for Not On The High Street's success. You were the first person to invest in us. And I want to tell that story later, as it's a very, very special one to me. But you were also the first person behind so many famous businesses. Lastminute.com, Moshi Monsters, Arc, Made.com, and now The Dots. You've been described as Britain's most successful digital startup backer and one of the most influential people in UK tech. So it is my honour that you are sitting with me today, eating our delicious soup and charcoal bread, and my son's just served you tea. I've and got it's no tar- time to talk. The soup and bread are so good. <laughs> The surroundings are so nice. (laughs) So I'd love to start first with a bit of your backstory. As you weren't born in the UK, you were born in Budapest, and your parents survived the German occupation of Hungary during the war. Could you tell us a little about this and your upbringing? So my parents were middle-class family people from uh, Hungary and Slovenia, actually, my dad. And they lived in Budapest. Uh, They got married there. And they survived through the war by escaping and running. And there are some amazing stories of how my mum escaped death using her intuition several times to uh, just escape. And my dad the same. So they were quite an unusual couple because many people didn't make it. But they left illegally over the mountains after the war. After the communists took over Hungary, they said, right, this is not a place for us. My dad was an entrepreneur. He was in the textile business. And he thought, no, I'm not staying here. I'm not hanging around to be communist. And, uh, and they decided to leave. And I was born just around then. And they carried me as a baby via Czechoslovakia. To, so you were uh, actually born there. In Budapest, And they had yeah. to actually transport you. Yeah, illegally, yeah. Illegally, yeah. As yeah. a young baby, yes, basically. Yes, yes, yes. And can you remember those times? Can you remember the way that your parents felt and that feeling of that era? Well, I was too young then, but they, they fled to Salzburg in Austria. That was a place where refugees could go. They were refugees, they were stateless. And I remember then, of course, we were living in, in one room in a hotel, the Golden Rose, a small hotel in Salzburg. And uh, I remember, I have some memories for then, but, uh, you know, I felt fine. I mean, I was, uh, and I was lucky because I, Hungarian was my first language, and then I learned German, speaking with an Austrian accent. And, and then if some years later, when we came to England, I learned English, so I was, was lucky to be able to learn languages very young. But I didn't feel a huge tension. My dad was very entrepreneurial. He was always hustling and finding things to make and sell. And he started a textile business, a textile factory, with a couple of Hungarian partners, actually in Salzburg, which kind of began to take off. And then the communists were going to take over Austria as well, so they decided to get out of there too. So they were very used to sprinting, building, sprinting, going, taking your valuables, and they came with virtually nothing. I mean, my dad had a Leica camera, which was quite valuable, and a diamond ring, that's all they had. So it's very, very possible that through what your parents went through, you shouldn't be here today in terms of how they escaped. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there must have been... 20 times, if you combine the two of them, that either of them could have got killed and uh, I would never have existed. And, uh, and they're Jewish. I mean, my family's Jewish. And that was not a great thing to be <laughs> in Budapest. And Budapest was 20% Jewish at the time. Yeah. And um, nearly 80, 90% of that 20% got uh, 
got uh, exterminated in the war. So it was amazing, amazing that they survived and then I was born, yeah. And in 1951, they moved to the UK. Um, I was speaking to Wilfred, the black farmer for this podcast, and his parents emigrated from Jamaica when he was little. And he spoke of it as being the most entrepreneurial act you can do, being brave enough to leave your life, your country, to set up somewhere new. Mm. But that's exactly what your parents did. Mm. Do you feel that that backstory, where, where you've come from, has led to always having this sort of entrepreneurial spark within yourself? I think it has a lot to do with it, yes, because uh, by a process of elimination and evolution, the guys who are the most willing to move, who see the danger first, who get off their backside and go, you know, they've got some special intuition, they've got some vision, some imagination, and so that tends to be, you know, the, 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 um, the qualities you need to be a great entrepreneur, or to spot one, is to spot this, and, uh, and my parents kind of had that. Uh, I mean, I didn't know it at the time. No, no. Uh, obviously, I didn't know it. But my dad came to England, and they got to England because, as refugees, they could decide after a while they got the chance of going to either Australia or Argentina or Canada or England. They decided England. And my dad came to England to train. He was a textile engineer to train um, miners, Welsh miners, because the mines were shutting down on how yes. to be textile engineers. So he came here. And then he started working in a factory in, in the East End of London and started to get some capital together. Yeah. Gosh. And, yeah, and he, he, was, he did quite well. I mean, he, he could hardly speak English. He spoke English with a very strong accent. Uh, my mum, too, very strong accent. Um, but they built their new life here. And yeah, the well, entrepreneurial built and supported his family because he had to. Yeah, he lived... Uh, I remember we, we lived... One of my earliest memories was living in a small one-bedroom flat in West Hampstead which was in those days real immigrant country. And my dad used to put the milk outside the window so it stayed cool, didn't have a fridge. So uh, it was uh, pretty, pretty yeah, tough. But pretty he, went to, he went to work, he built some capital and started buying textile machines, rented a space and started selling his own. And in the end, he became one of the major suppliers to uh, Marks & Spencer. And his company went public, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was, in, that was after only being in England for... 15 years, something like that, 12 years, yeah. So he went from a place where he was a stranger and building... Couldn't speak a, the language. Couldn't speak the language yeah, yeah. to floating his business yeah, in 15 yeah, years. Yeah, it got bought by Cortels, actually. I'm, I'm yeah. seeing the DNA is strong. <laughs> then tell me more about growing up. You went on to study economics at university where you were finding out what your passions were. Did you have a, an idea of the career at that point in time? Well, I had an idea of a career before that. Uh, when I was um, in my teens, I used to go to the factory and learn stuff and just watch my dad come up with new ideas and go to meetings. And he had a factory in France by then, one in Canada, one in Jersey, and one in London, in the King's Road, actually. But, uh, but unfortunately, he had a terrible accident, car accident when I was 16, and he got killed. He died. Uh, and then everything collapsed. I mean, uh, it was a bad time. The economy was bad. The businesses weren't doing well at that particular time. So I went from being a golden, protected uh, you know, boy, you know, being driven around by my dad's driver, to uh, having to hustle for myself. And so I had to... It was just when I was going to university. I mean, he didn't even know I got in. So everything changed. So then I had to think, right, what am I going to do now? I mean, I was the textile business was finished. It's gone, sold, over... And so I thought, well, I'll be sensible. I'll do economics because that's good. You can switch yeah. to virtually anything. 
and did you in, enjoy that? Was it lighting no. light bulbs? No, and, no, 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 no. Some, you, some of it. I mean, there are some quite. Uh, it's interesting. There are some quite well-known Hungarian economists and Austrian economists around, but uh, I, uh, I wouldn't say I really enjoyed it. I found it really tough. In fact, I switched from economics to economics with economic history, which gives you a perspective yes. about the history of cycles, economic cycles, going back over the last centuries, you know, so that, uh, that was very useful. That was much more interesting, getting away from the mathematical side. Uh, all, all that teaches you yeah. a lot about uh, how early businesses were began, how the um, economy, the empire, how that all developed. That was very useful for me that, and interesting. Yeah, so that bit I enjoyed, but I, then I had to go and get a job. And the loss of your father at that sort of prominent moment in your, in your young life, how did that affect you? Oh, that was uh, the biggest shock you can imagine. I mean, uh, I was uh, 16, and I remember I had to go. He was in hospital in Switzerland, uh, where he had his accident near there for three weeks. I remember I used to go over there with my mum, and then one weekend, my mum, my uncle, all the friends were gone, but I was still there. I was still there, and that night I went to the hospital to see him, as I had every day, and they came to tell me he, he died. So uh, it was the worst shock ever. I had to arrange his funeral. I was 16. I, was, I can't believe it. And you look back at your children now when they're 16 and you think what you had to do. Yeah, but uh, there was no one else to do it. So there we go. And so That was a big change, big shock. Big, big yeah, shock. Yeah. And then you went into uh, uni and yeah. you had this wide range of career. Can you summarise what it was between sort of leaving uni and then going actually into uh, venture capital? Because there was a period of time, wasn't there, where you you had all sorts of jobs um, being promoted, promoted. Yeah, I was in, I was in I, my first job was in insurance and I worked, did that for a year and I got the taste for the city. I liked the, I liked the city, the action and the markets but insurance wasn't for me you know I couldn't use my languages yeah. I couldn't I couldn't use my uh, education then I went to an English merchant bank but I moved from economics into the lending side which I found was more interesting and by the time I was 25 I think I was the manager of Europe but we were 25 yeah, manager of Europe yeah yeah then I saw the writing on the wall I thought you know this big bank stuff this ain't gonna last but at that time one of my family spotted a talented young guy who was, he was working with, they were 18 or 19 or 20, he said, look, this guy's got a brilliant new idea, it's called online, and it's business information. I said, really? So the guy came to see me, and he was electric, he was amazing. And so that weekend, I put in my first 10 grand, because I, I just his ability to sell and his talent were incredible. So I was doing this in parallel to my day job, and doing that gave me the first understanding of how companies really work. Because big banks are very political, and it's not really... It's kind of entrepreneurial, but real entrepreneurialism is a different thing. And then the, the sort of first boom, uh, tech boom, was starting to happen. This was 93, 94. And suddenly we realized we could float. Our stock price went flying. and uh, We did some amazing deals. Then I decided it was time to move on and make my own, my own investment banking business. So I was combining um, entrepreneurialism with knowledge of building a business with investment banking techniques, corporate finance, so that all that came together. And that was New Media Star. That was New Media Investors, New Media Investors, investors yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, we set up in Berkeley Square next to Annabelle's on the, As thir- you do. On the, on the third floor. So you wanted to combine this sort of entrepreneurial spirit with what you'd learned from banking, and it was... And what I'd learned from building a business. And what you'd learned from building a business. Over nearly ten years, yeah. And, and you, you'd started to see, obviously, these guys working through, you'd started to see the highs and lows, how, what they were 
what issues they were having to tackle. What, the small companies? Yes, the oh, small yeah. companies. Oh, yeah. So yeah, you yeah, were yeah. absorbing that information. So the internet had just really... Yeah, Windows had just come out. Yes. Windows, yeah. had, Windows had just come out, I think, in 93 and 94. And people were saying, a good friend of mine said, oh, you know, this internet stuff, it's a car boot sale in the sky. <laughs> I won't tell you who it was. <laughs> and Brilliant. I, and I, think some, I think someone else said, oh, Microsoft is software stuff. I forget it. It's nonsense. <laughs> a famous British entrepreneur said, I won't say who. <laughs> so uh, but I thought, well, actually, this has a huge future. So I went off and Did started you? my own business. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was very lucky. I met a very senior corporate finance guy from Rothschilds. Who, he, just, he just left NM Rothschild, a very elite merchant bank, and wanted to do something new with his life. So I teamed up with him. And then another great guy, uh, that was Richard Compton Burnett, another great guy, Andrew Carruthers. And they've all got their own businesses now. But I teamed up with them and we started New Media Investors and we were, we were headline stuff because we were investing in last minute. We were advising companies. We were investing in all sorts of great, great, great early businesses. And you became famed for being the man who signed the first investment check for lastminute.com. Yes. You know, looking back, it seems a lifetime ago. But at yes. the time, yeah. I'm sure everyone listening remembers it. But yeah. if you don't remember it, yes. it was seriously famous. Lastminute.com. They had this greatest name. They were selling holidays at a better rate than a travel agent on the high street. And flights, yeah. And yeah. flights. Yeah. And it was the first time customers trusted a business with their bank details mm. and they became monumentally huge. Mm. This was back in 1998 and they were part of this internet boom, the mm. dot-com bubble, okay. and you were the one who took the chance of them. Can you yeah. just tell me that story? How I took the chance on them? Took that chance. Well, the founders are Brent Hoberman and Martha Lane Fox and uh, they walked into my office in Berkeley Square with, I think, five or ten pages of uh, idea. It was an idea. They had no revenue, nothing. I thought, I loved the name. And then when I saw them interacting in the room for five, ten minutes, I thought, this couple is amazing. They are so talented. Something good is going to happen. It's a huge sector. And there are lots of challenges, but I'm in. So we're off Just to the like races. That. Yeah, and I joined the board, yeah. Uh, and then we raised some more money from other people later. And, um, well, just like that, yeah. Because I, I make a lot of decisions based on the quality of the people and whether I think they have tenacity, savvy, the ability to spot opportunities, commitment, all those things which are like somebody spotting a great song or, you know, it's intuition. And you were the chairman of Spark Ventures. at the, Yes. Um, um, and well, we took it public, yeah. Well, you took it public. Yeah, yeah, in 99, yeah. And, uh, uh, but, but last minute, you have to remember... It went public for about £500 million, uh, actually a bit less, but it boomed on the first day from, from 400 to five or £600 million. The share price went from £3.80 to £5.40 on the first day. It was incredible. But what was it about Martha and Brent, the founders, that meant that you just signed that cheque? You, you talk about it's this gut instinct of yeah. knowing who to invest in, yeah. what type of person you look for. Can you just talk more about that? Because I think there's so many people listening mm. who, you know, I remember talking about trying to raise money and mm. what it takes to put yourself mm. out there. It's mm. a very, very scary thing. But from your point of view, what is it that you look for? Well, first of all, I look for a mental agility, so the ability to see risks that these people have around them. Secondly, that they're commercial. Thirdly, they can sell. Because so selling. Sell, selling is very important because as life goes on, they're going to have to sell to their employees, to their customers. 
if they go public to the investment banking community into the institutions so they have to be very good at selling and quick quick mentally very agile and also spotting a commercial opportunity and then jumping on it and fast you know and a lot of people think they've got this but believe me not many people have is it a rarity oh, it's very that rare. combination it's very rare it's very rare and and also I, when I meet people and I'm going to invest in them, I always think, well, in five or seven years' time, because it's going to be five, seven years, like a marriage, will I be able to present these people to the city institutions or to large private equity investors or to large trade buyers? That's, it's very important. I assess that early on. I, I don't expect them to know how all that works, but I do expect them to have the ability to learn it fast. Yeah. yeah. So you you look at that rough diamond, don't you? You sort of yeah. you know that they're sparkly. You know yeah. that they've got it. Sometimes they end up being, you know, more successful than me. <laughs> Smarter than me. I love it. It's you know, wonder, you know. Do yeah. remember, guys? I shined your diamond. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. I love what you say about do they pass a Sunday lunch test? And yes. it's so true. Yeah. You actually told me once, and you just mentioned it mm. there. Mm that I needed to understand that taking on investment, and it was both ways, mm. is like getting married. Yes. That actually investments normally last longer than the <laughs> average marriage. <laughs> Probably, yes. And you asked me, and I think it was we were looking at an investor that was going to come on to Not on the High Street, yeah. and you were basically saying, you know, do you want to walk up the aisle with this mm-hmm. investor? And that advice has never left me, and I always pass it on. Because, as I've heard you say, it's all quite emotional. The whole investment thing, I think it's why you're the most successful investor you're emotionally intelligent you like people so many people in business believe that you know it's quite emotionless they try and not show emotion or look for emotion or feel it's a weakness but I actually just think that I don't know it's just such an emotional thing you know we're such emotional beings and you've spotted that as a strength rather than a weakness absolutely absolutely because when you're selling a product I mean like you you have over the years on uh, not on the high street or uh, in your present business now you're thinking what's the emotion of the buyer going to be like because in the end that's what you're relying on a market and can you spot the market can you try to assess what kind of emotional, emotional reaction people are going to ha- have to a product, the human side. So, I mean, I'm on, I've been on the boards of lots of companies and sometimes people come with their spreadsheets and their accountants and, you know, no, it's, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's useful. You need to do it. You need, you need a finance director who knows where the money is, where the cash is, how, how the uh, earnings are going, uh, everything. You, you need that. But it's not going to tell you what those four or five main assumptions are in the growth of the company and how it's going to need to be financed. You know, you just even talking there, I feel like I'm in a board meeting back in 2010 <laughs> because, you know... We, you were we the go, best. Well, every, every board meeting, you were spot on. <laughs> the, the, honestly, the reports were amazing and you were spot on with, with forecast. It was fantastic. Well, we... Tr- we, you, were we, our, we you were our best company. We, we tried hard, but I remember... Well. I remember that, you know, I just have that feeling being around you that you would always just throw in this question <laughs> that was completely and utterly spot on the actual real thing are they going to buy it Mm, mm. how are the partners feeling Mm. what are you going to do Mm. to grow at Christmas Mm. do you not feel that that's a threat Mm. and yet we could have been in that bubble of just talking about the numbers and the graphs etc etc do you think you always have had that or is that a muscle that's grown over time now you've seen I think I think I, I had it inside me as I described earlier from my family history you know going back generations of entrepreneurs 
But uh, I think I honed it, being in growing companies, especially the first one, for nearly 10 years. And that taught me a lot about the daily challenges that you really have, because a lot of finance people don't really get that. You they know, they've, they've never actually done it. And most of them, a lot of them have never ever, ever, ever done business, it. Yeah. A lot of people working in banking or, or the government, they don't really know how the real cookie crumbles. You know, I have friends. <laughs> I have a friend who has, has a very successful business, and he sold his business to a huge, a huge multinational. And they used to say to him, well, how did you come up with your ideas? And he told me, well, I was driving around the North Circular, thinking in a traffic jam, and then where's your R&D department? I haven't got one. I just think of things. And he's, he's, <laughs> the guy's a genius. You know, he's, I won't tell you who he is, but he's invented some of the most amazing things you can imagine. But the North Circular was his uh, That was, was his, his R&D, R&D department. <laughs> yeah, when they yeah. bought the company, they said, okay, so where, where's your R&D department? Well, it's me. <laughs> week on Conversations of Inspiration, we're running a competition with our partner NatWest, where if you are a small business or independent, you are in with a chance to win this very ad break coming up. A free advert to showcase your business to hundreds of thousands of listeners, thanks to NatWest's generosity. This week's winner on our ad break is Supernova Living. Over to you. Hello, Hello. I'm Laura. And I'm Jermaine Beckford. Husband and wife, parents and passionate creatives. Who want to try and bring balance to the world one person at a time. Yes, we do. (laughs) And we should probably also tell you that we're the founders of Supernova Living. It's a new wellness company, just 10 months old, that's passionate about plants and the power and balance that they can bring to everybody. I'm also a professional footballer, so people may find it strange talking about plants. But I've literally been given sugar-filled protein powders with artificial chemicals for about 15 years, and it started injuries and illness for me. So to cut a very long story short, we developed a wonder powder. Supernova Protein is an organic, pure rocket fuel to help your life in every way. There's fermented plant protein. But also an abundance of organic adaptogens, plants to balance your body. And it tastes so good, Mm. you'd never know it was incredibly good for you too. Holly always asks her guests their business highs, and we've been so grateful to already have appeared in Vogue twice. Jermaine was named in GQ's 2019 Life Coaches article, Lorraine Pascal uses Supernova, and Rudimental have the Man O2 powder on their rider. Holly is so right to say it's a roller coaster. It's Mm -hmm. ridiculously hard working together as directors and a married couple, (laughs) but we truly believe in these powerful plants. And we would love to give all Holly's listeners 20% off with the code HOLLY20 on our website, supernovaliving.com. Thank you so much for having us, Holly. It's immensely appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. See you later. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses can tell and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. What have you got to lose? Get recording. I can't wait to have a listen. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. And I also love what you say about having founding teams with the yin and yang. What do you feel about that? What do you look for? Well, I think that's really important. So if you take Brent and Martha or you and Sophie or I've got lots of other examples, there's usually one person who's great at selling and one who's good at organising or one who's great at tech and one who's good at running the commercial side. 
And um, believe it or not, in the 12 biggest exits you know, we've had or I've had over the last 20 years, uh, guess how many had the same two people there at the end as when we or I invested? 11 out of 12. Right. Because usually a person on their own, A, they'll try and keep most of the shares. You know, yeah. they're, they're mean with the shares. Yeah, yeah. So there's often a reason why they haven't got a partner because they're not giving shares away. Yeah. Yeah. So they have 100% in the end of nothing yeah so you believe very much do you in duos is that oh, yeah. something you love as a yes you know when I look back at absolutely. Sophie and I absolutely. and I would say absolutely she was the yin to my yang you know I was fast-paced pushing things forward not too worried about the detail yeah. Sophie though was yeah. considered yeah. always in the detail we yeah. balanced each other you were other. a perfect you were you were a perfect example I mean you're one of my best examples the yin and yang it's very important because a person on their own it's very difficult yeah. and, and there's a whole trust thing as well yeah because yeah. they need to be able to trust well when when someone just creates something themselves yes yes they tend to be closed and then later investment is difficult and persuading them to give shares to key people is difficult because they're oh it's my business you know it it doesn't it often is a real limiting factor it's not saying some companies don't work with a brilliant yeah, extremely talented founder who can do lots of, course, of things. Of course, Dyson. Yeah, you know yes, he's he's course. he's a great yes. example of us. Yeah. You know, it's mine. I'm doing it. I'm going to grow it. You know, it's private it's genius, yeah. but it's quite rare. And it's that duo, I think. And similarly, now with my sister, you know, we're definitely the yin and yang at Holly & Co. She's introverted thinker and I'm more the practical and leader. Mm-hmm. And it was the fact that you look for these balancing acts within your organisation. You're almost looking at that business plan, aren't you? You're saying, you know, this organisation needs so many things. Yes. If you're one person, it's very difficult to very, be all of those very, things. Very, very difficult. I'm in business now with you know, one of the greatest advertising guys ever. And uh, it's wonderful. And you're the yin to the yang there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you swap yings and yangs now and again? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I know you do. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And then go back to your journey. Around 2000, suddenly the dot-com bubble bursts. Lastminute.com, when you floated, raised... Is it 120 million? 120 million. And yeah. the demand was 4 billion worth yes. of stock yeah, absolutely. at that time? Yeah, yeah. I was sitting in the room when Morgan Stanley walked in and they said, well, because the original issue price was going to be 190p, I think it was. And they walked in the room and said, well, actually, guys, you know, I'm proud to tell you that we're going to actually do this deal at twice the original indicated price, which was an all-time record. Usually when you indicate a price on a new issue, it it's around 10, 20% around, percent around yeah. there. But it was twice and they thought this was never been seen before no and uh, it was amazing but then within a year we I think we floated on 15th or 20th of March 2000 and then the market collapsed collapsed yeah but the the you know the reason that they crashed was this hype but they actually weren't making any money they were having it's these a bit like today it's like Lyft Uber we yeah. work all these guys, except for now, it's they're losing billions, not tens not of millions. Tens of millions. They're losing billions, and in, in, in the prospectuses, they're even writing, uh, this company is, is possibly won't make ever make a profit. That's what it says in the prospectus. So, what was that time like? How did you navigate around that time? Because you'd well, had this serious high, and then it came crashing down. Yeah, well, it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. But we were lucky. I mean, last minute had 120 million pounds of cash, so that was great, and uh, and everyone else got. You know, slaughtered. I mean, people people didn't raise cash, so we were in a good position. Although you needed a lot of money in those days, because you don't have things like AWS, 
you yeah, had you, you had to build tools, and you had to build you new tech yeah, you yeah. had to build new new software it was it was yeah. it was very hard so it was yeah, very expensive very expensive so that cost quite a lot and i remember sitting in the basement near bond street trying to help them with the software it was, brent was there as well it was really tough but we kind of did it we and did what it what were the lessons that you, when you come out of that something like that well i think the main lesson i i learned is that um, if the people are good they'll react and they'll recover which and last minute did you know, it did. In the end, it got sold for a billion dollars. And my, my business, uh, and which became New Media Spark, uh, we raised uh, uh, several hundred million. And um, we, we had cash. We were in good shape because our timing was good. You know, we, we could feel the market was crazy hot. And that's the time. Uh, what do you say? While the ducks are quacking. Uh, when the ducks are quacking, feed them. In, in the, in I the say sto- it every week. Do you? In the stock market, yeah. yeah in the stock yeah. market, in, in, in the public market. I just yeah. say it generally. Yeah, you know. but it's hard. It's hard. Timing of doing IPOs and new issues is a tough game, as you've seen. If you look at Snapchat or if you look at uh, some of the other businesses that have floated, they've gone on momentum, but then things haven't followed through. But if you're an owner of stock, there comes a minute where you think, well, this is a great moment. In the end, it has to be a decent business. And yeah. it's the people, as you said. Yeah, you know, yeah. I re- recently read about what your feelings about Brexit. Like, mm. Quite similarly, mm. you're basically saying, mm. you know, you invest in people. Yeah. You look at the whites of their eyes yeah, and yeah. you believe that they have all those characteristics yeah. like you do about this country, I think. Yeah, you know, well, this country, I mean, when I came to this country, it had exchange control. It was under a Labour government for years. You couldn't invest abroad without buying special premium currency. This was the United Kingdom. So from 1948, I think, until 1979 when Thatcher took over, you had exchange control. You couldn't leave England with more than £30 or £100. You had to have a stamp in your passport to get foreign currency. But despite that, Lloyd's built up. The euro-dollar bond market started here. The equity market started to take off. All the commodity markets, they were all booming, booming. Booming. So the domestic conditions here didn't really kill that. I mean, exports didn't really happen, but a lot of services happened. And, the and do talent, you think that's down to the talent, the, yeah, what we yeah, have in this yeah, country? Yeah, centuries, centuries. And you think we can do it again? Yeah, centuries of, centuries of talent. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a Brexiteer, but I'm not worried about this country's ability to adapt. And now with so many very smart immigrants groups going back the last 20, 30, 50 years. There are some amazing people, so it's made the country even more resilient. So I think the country will be, will be fine, whatever happens. You know, people underestimate the ability of, of people in the UK to adapt and business people to adapt. And our heritage. And, and our heritage, yeah, yeah, this is a trading country. I don't, don't have, have fear, fear for this. No, no, no. And then, thankfully, when we talk about this time of lastminute.com, it was roughly around this time that you came into my life. When we were about a year old, not in the high street, mm. and Sophie and I were on the brink of basically losing everything. We'd poured all of our money into the business. We'd remortgaged. Fools. Um, we, <laughs> yeah, well, no, that this was mother's loyalty to a business. <laughs> and we knew that we were onto something, but basically we were very, very much up against it. We have to take ourselves back to 2006, where, mm. as you said, building technology, there was nothing off the shelf that you could go and get. And yet we started to get this bit of traction, but we needed money and we'd gone to the banks. And at this time, you didn't have crowdfunding. You didn't have anything like that. So anyone that we knew, we asked them, please ask 
if you know anyone with money, do you know, we go to a pub and someone would say their husband worked in the city and we would instantly be onto them. And so our dear Julie at the time, who Julie yeah. Turner, who was Sophie's friend, and we had swapped shares actually for her to help us with our PR. And I will never forget this because she was in the south of France in a church yes. and she was sitting next to a gentleman and she turned and they just got chatting and she just said under the divine nature in the church she said you don't happen to know of anybody do you I'm working for this great company the great founders called not on the high street but they're struggling and they they need to find an investor and this gentleman turned around and said actually yeah I do know of somebody. Steve Williams, yeah. Steve, and he said, you. And so this was on the Sunday, and I remember Julie leaving the service early Mm. to call me outside, and I just got this phone call Monday morning, and we'd set up a meeting for that week. And we came in with our bags. We couldn't couldn't afford all our goods, like um, two ladies setting up a market stall. And we couldn't afford the taxi, so we got a tube, and we had the bags full of all of our personalised dinosaurs t-shirts I and didn't everything. know you took the tube yeah we well got done. to the tube <laughs> and we set it all up and you walked in and for anyone listening it was serious Dragon's Den moment <laughs> because this was it we obviously weren't going to be talking to Tom about how bad it was and that every day we were hand to mouth mm. but we sold our lives and we sold our vision to you and I always remember it was quite a quick deal this was around the Christmas time and you said to me Holly you've Mm. got an hour Mm. okay because I've got a very important meeting after Mm. this Mm. so we quickly put everything together this Mm. was the final meeting my Mm. father was in there as the CFO and we did um, created personalised hand-bound books for you with mm. New Media Spark on the top. I've still got them, yeah. Have you? Yes. And I, we put it all out for you and we did it. We pitched yeah. our lives away. Mm. And I'll always remember about 50 minutes, mm-hmm. so you're a bit early and you knew what you were doing. I know you knew what you were doing. You mm. said, okay, guys, that's great. We've got to get off now. Mm. We've got another meeting. Mm. And Sophie and I just sat there and the blood ran from out of our, you know, we were basically cold. And my father packed up all of the products on the desk. I should hope so. And he said, girls, you did the best job you could. I'm really proud of Mm. you. Mm. And it was Christmas time Mm. and the sales were coming through. So we knew we Mm. were onto something. And you walked away. Thank you very much. I'll be in touch. Mm. And so we walked out to the lift Mm. And it always makes me emotional, this Mm. bit. I don't think I'll ever not cry. And I walked to the lift and Dad had his arms around us Mm. and he said, it's, you know, you're going to be okay. It's Mm. okay, you did your best. Mm. And you walked back down Mm. the corridor Mm. and he said, actually, guys, do you have a minute? Mm. And you took us into the room and you said, I think you've got the spark. We'd like to invest in you. (laughs) And you brought out glasses and champagne because you knew... You knew what that was to us. Mm. And I just, I don't know. I just can't thank you enough for that moment, Tom. Crazy. One of my crazy moments. Your crazy, (laughs) brilliant moments, I'd like to. I thought, I loved the yin and yang you had. I loved the idea. I thought it was genius. 
And the rest is history. And it was such an exciting time. Mm. You know, and you came to some of our make-do and meets that you witnessed. Oh, the one at the Covent Garden. You witnessed this. unbelievable. This this, that you said, Holly, this energy in this room, these people. These women. These women, this (laughs) estrogen, this thing that you were doing. I couldn't believe Covent Garden. When you did that thing in Covent Garden, I knew knew it was going to be amazing. It was. And, you know, ultimately, Tom, Mm -hmm. and and I just want to take the Mm -hmm. moment to thank you on behalf of 5,000 partners now that sell with Not On The High Street. Um, so many lives no, have changed. I'm blushing now. Well, you can't really see his blush because he's always tanned. So <laughs> it's a, so many lives have changed thanks to you. And, oh, you know, Not On The High Street now is £700 million have been pumped into the UK economy. Amazing. You know, thanks to that moment, yeah. that moment that you yeah. said you've got the spark, oh. it gave us that ability to keep going. And you now have 20 partners turning over a million pounds themselves a year through Incredible. the site and I've seen families afford holidays first homes partners able to leave their job all thanks to you signing that first check yeah, so but it thank was your, you it was your idea it was your amazing idea and your commitment look at the commitment you made to it I said at the beginning you need commitment you need vision can you present these people to top investors later on and you ticked all the boxes would you like to have Sunday lunch with them Absolutely, yeah. You ticked all the boxes. So, um, so I was just applying my normal, yeah, my normal principles. But it's not often. It doesn't happen often. How often does those sort of things in your career? How often have you felt that, you know, people I think think of investment and they think, oh, they're investing all the time. You know, what's well, you your... think we think, wow, I have to, I must do this, and it's it's going to be amazing. Maybe twenty times, but uh, uh, but I've got it wrong sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't you, always get it right. So when you look at who you invest in, obviously you want every the people you back. You think will go all the way. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine them being worth a billion. I mean, we've created some billion dollar, billion pound companies. Um, I imagine them. Yeah. And being, do you being think up there, you yeah. see them that before they see it? Oh yeah. Yes. Often, yeah. often, often. I've had I had some great companies, some amazing people, like ex army people at Merger Market. They were amazing. It's now worth a billion dollars that business. But I could see in them you that they. Oh them. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And as one of our first ever guests, who's in the investment world. Oh, um, scary. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, you know. But I knew you had to be on this podcast. Mm. When you look at businesses now today, mm, yeah. and you've been obviously looking at businesses for now 25 years years. you talked about those key ingredients do you think also that there is a need for the business to be disruptive out there do you think when you look at a company do you need them to disrupt an industry do you need them or is that been and gone in a way well I used I used to but uh, now what's kind of happened is so much has been disrupted already and there are so many big niches that you can actually find, like recently we saw a, a maker of very specialist shoes, high-end, you know, making profits, doing a, amazing stuff. So it's not disrupting a whole market, it's more specialised. So as the, many of these markets have become bigger and fast-moving, uh, the big plays have already been done, so it's quite hard to find something revolutionary. So that disruption has now been disrupted in a way. Yeah, it's kind of and happened. And now do you look at the opposite then? So the niches within those... Yeah, some of the niches are big, though. Some of the niches are big. You know, you can, you can do very well. You know, we've been looking at certain niches that you'd think were played out, but they're not, you know. What I type mean, of things are you interested looked, in at the moment? We've looked at uh, certain areas of clothes... I mean, look what uh, Pretty Little Thing and Boohoo are doing. You know, it's amazing. They're, they're disrupting people who were even 
huge uh, online players like Asos. You know, they, yeah. it's inc- it's incredible what's happening now. So some of those big big marketplaces are being broken down, so you can get smaller guys n- in niches in these exciting big markets that can still do very well, very well indeed, make it make it amazing hundred, two, three, four hundred million pound businesses. So that's that's what I look for. And so you look at markets and a, a disruption or the niches that can play through. Mm-hmm. Do you feel in this day and age, and it's something I talk a lot about on this podcast, mm. about having purpose within your organisations? So, you know, if I look at Not on the High Street, mm. beyond the commercials, mm. you were helping communities of people come together. On a mission. On a mission. Yeah. What do you think about that now with this day and age, with the millennials coming through, with people needing to feel more about a brand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, absolutely. What do you feel about that? Well, I think a lot of people starting businesses are on a mission and they really believe they're doing, especially nowadays, you're right, with millennials, with the last few generations, they're very much into the softer side of things. You know, making a huge amount of money is good, but it's not really their main driver in life. They're more interested in spreading wealth in doing good stuff so i think it's important that people do have a mission but they mustn't be dreamy you know if they're going if they're going to raise money in business they mustn't just be dreamy there ha- has to be practical mm. you know if you're going to do a bicycle business okay that's good and it's good purpose but you know don't go crazy you need to be you need to be practical i'm mean, like brompton you know they're practical and the dots, and, good, re- and the dots, yes. It's yeah. One of so our Pip's yeah. been a guest on this podcast, and she's brilliant, and yeah. she's absolutely brilliant, yeah. and we roared yeah. with laughter. Yeah. And she's on a mission. She's on a mission to make a LinkedIn for the creative world. That's that's her mission, and uh, she knows it's great for the people in the industry. She knows it's great for the industry, and and it helps her. It, it, it gives her strength. So you do need to be on some kind of vision, even if it's building a fashion brand like a great new type of t-shirt or a new new type of shoes or a new type of sweaters you know you need it's good to be on a mission but you you have to keep your feet on the ground and know that in the end the economics you know the stock how many SKUs you're going to have how long is the delivery going to take how much is the acquisition cost going to be if you're on the internet all these things are very important is PR going to work like you use PR brilliantly lastminute.com used PR brilliantly and it's a very powerful and cheap way of getting your name out there so they have to think about all that and you've been involved with a number of entrepreneurs Mm. who have started one thing and then they've started something else what do you think it is do you think there is this I don't know are they ever going to give up will we ever give up creating and building what's well, it's a the... kind of one it's a, it's an adventurous mind that these all these people have they're never going to sit there uh, with their slippers by the fire they're always going to be thinking oh what can I do now what can I do next uh, and, and it's, in, it's they're humanly interested in new developments like yeah Michael Acton Smith we, we were the first backers of his first business which was Firebox which was Firebox and then uh, we backed Moshi Monsters now he's gone on to do something else great because he never stops thinking oh. Yeah, yeah, he never stops thinking, which is a billion-dollar company already. So, uh, you know, people like that, there's something in them. They, they have, it's not ants in their pants, but they, they're always inquiring. They're inquiring. <laughs> They've got an inquiring mind. Um, I remember at your wedding, yeah. actually, um, we were sitting down with Michael and he had this yeah. big A3 sketch pad at your wedding and he was still <laughs> writing things down. I was like, just calm down, have a glass of champagne. <laughs> yeah. But there he was still, yeah, he, you know, he, he, scribbling he, he, he along. He writes in his notebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's just yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, my, yeah, my partner, Sir John Hegarty, he does that as well. Well, I'm yeah. just about to go mm. on to that. Yeah. Last year, I'd love to talk to you about this newest venture, mm. the Garage Soho, yes. of which I was lucky enough to be involved in yeah. right at the start. 
start. Yeah. It was actually such a help to me because I was going through quite a difficult transition part of my life. And I remember having meetings with you in the Soho House office. And it's this beautiful townhouse where we talk where about I, your, where, I, where, I, where the garage is. Yeah. Where the garage is. And we talk about your new venture, investing mm. in small creative startups. Mm. And then me and my team came out to help you do the kickoff launch. And we oh, were, yes, I remember. We yeah. were spraying oil barrels and all these sorts still of there. things. <laughs> Are they? Oh, good, because they work really hard to do. You founded it with wonderful Sir John Hegarty. Mm. Tell me about why you decided to start the Garage Soho and what the business does. So my original uh, public business, which was called Spark Ventures, was there for nearly 15 years. But it had, from the beginning in 1999, it had been investing in your kind of company and other private companies. And the problem with that, as 2008 happened, when 2008 happened, lots of companies crashed. And a lot of our investments were made in unlisted companies, unquoted Mm -hmm. companies, which means it was very hard to work out what their value is. The the big institutions got tired of investing in early stage businesses because they didn't, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't assess a value, Mm -hmm. put it simply. And so Spark Ventures morphed into something else, into investing in smaller, in public companies. Mm-hmm. So the price was more visible, wasn't opaque. And that turned into something called Gresham House, which is one of the oldest British companies, which I'm still involved with, uh, Gresham House Strategic. So that now invests in small, medium-sized public companies. So the original business I founded couldn't really do much anymore in that vehicle. And then Sir John Hegarty, was, he sold his business called BBH, which he founded, he's the H, and uh, he was in Soho and I was in Soho, so we, we got talking, we said, well, why don't we do something together for new new ideas, uh, completely new ideas, and looking for companies which are creating new paradigms and especially creative companies which needed funding, so we thought we had talents that could match very well, so him doing the creative and the advertising side and me focusing on the financial side but uh, you know venture capital side so we put our own capital in and we started that off and, uh, and that got, was got back a building. in 2014 uh, 2013 14 yeah and now we've got about 20 companies yeah and mm. it, is it exciting again do you, oh, yeah. I mean, do you feel that you're... Too much that, excitement. Too much excitement? <laughs> yes, yeah. too much excitement, yes. And the companies that you're investing in at the moment, tell me about some of the things that you're really pleased that you invested in. Well, we, we invested in a social media platform, which is for finding influencers. And okay. that's, that's roaring because lots What's of big companies... Called? It's called Waylar. Lots of big companies uh, need advice on how they get to the right social influencer. And so companies like Unilever or a Nestle or a Ford, they, they don't know how to do that very well. So this company provides them. It's growing like crazy. We have a company that does uh, a new way of getting photo albums made. You know all the photos you yes. lose in your phone? Yes. But you actually want some printed with yes. a nice hardback. Yes. And it's called Popsa, and it does that. And it's growing like crazy. We've got a company that does tailor-made jewellery, high-end jewellery, called Taylor & Hart, where you design your own, your own ring. And John came up with a great strap line, which is, uh, is someone else wearing your engagement ring? <laughs> with this, it's, it's, it's personalised, so uh, yes. you, you know it's yours. Yes, yes. Consumer and brand is important. 
and all these I mentioned, you know, building the brand is, is important. But it's, it's hard, expensive stuff. I mean, we've got a, a, an investment in a, in a mattress company, one of mattress in a box company, and that's interesting. You know, that's, that's, that was roaring, and then it got a bit more difficult uh, when a lot of suppliers came in. And, and uh, so we you have... You go through the ups and downs. Yeah, yeah But sure. you've been there before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, Tom, my dear friend, it's been such a privilege to talk to you today. Can you tell me, on this journey, this this unbelievable story you've just told me, mm. what would you say has been your biggest low? Biggest low? Low throughout all of it. Well, I think, I think my, my, one of my hardest times was moving from uh, commercial banking into investment banking, actually. When you work at a big commercial bank in those days, you had the power, the deposits, you know, everything was in your hands. And suddenly, you, you, I had to make the switch because I knew it wasn't going to last. And making that switch from the big corner office, having 20 people you know, reporting to you and you with your driver and all the rest of it, to moving to a little company, starting all over again, that is a very challenging. And the opposite, the high? The biggest high. Having children is always great, and I've had one lately. Um, biggest business high, I guess, things like uh, floating companies when they when they pop and go well. And the other day, I had a, a great high. So one of the companies uh, that I was the first investor in was called Cobalt Music Group. So Cobalt started in the in the top floor of our building in uh, Glasshouse Street, where 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 I met you. Yes, yeah. And they were in the attic little room. And uh, earlier this week, I went back to their office. 450 people above Cannon Street Station, 100 people in, in L.A., 150 in New York, turnover 750 million or something like that. To see that, it's like, wow, it's, it's incredibly uh, uh, humbling. Humbling. Uh, humbling. And the same, the same yeah. guy who, who, who started it is still there running it. Yeah, and it's the biggest independent music publisher in the world. So that gives you Fantastic. a really, it really gives you a good feeling. <laughs> and someone that you would think that you would like me to interview on this podcast, someone that you think has inspired you, um, and that you would feel would inspire others. Oh, well, I think Martha, Martha Lane Fox. Yeah, I remember She's meeting amazing. Martha yeah, yeah. many, many years ago. I wanted to take over as prime minister. Yeah. Good I've, job. I've asked her. She didn't go, hmm. No. <laughs> I'm involved with her lucky voice business. I yes. saw her lately. Yes. And she'd be very interesting to talk to. And I what think, she's I think doing she... with government as well at the yeah, moment yeah, is yeah. unbelievable. I'd love to talk to her. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, thank you. As I said, you are very, very dear to me. And what a journey you've had. And you've still got so much to be giving to the world of tech and moving businesses forward, mentoring people, investment, the Garage Soho. But thank you personally for all your wisdom that you've shared with me over the years, your support, your cheerleading me through everything, the late night phone calls. Um, You were the person who was there not only for my biggest highs, but you were the person there for my my lows. And um, you were on the end of the phone. On the end of the phone, and I remember you said, Holly, get over here. And I said, where are you? And you said, well, I'm, I'm just getting off a plane right now, um, but I'll, I'll be with you in, what, 50, 40 minutes? Just get in a taxi. And you just literally left the airport and you went and straight away met me. And I've just been so honoured that you were that person who I pitched to. But after 13, 14 years, I can call you my dear friend. Oh, now I'm going teary-eyed. Thanks, Holly. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful new business you have. Oh, Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. So now we reach the end of the podcast where I 
get to sit back for a moment and hand over to my guest who has written or wants to say something to their younger self. Over to you, Tom. Dear young Tom, a few words of advice to you from where I am now. The first one is to try to follow a spiritual path in your life. Recognise a higher force. Call it God or Buddha or Jesus or Mohammed or nature, whatever you feel comfortable with. You can't control everything as much as you'd like to, especially when you're young. So realise there is a higher force and remember to surrender to it. Always remember that it's not what knocks you down that is important, but how you get up and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. After all, the challenge of even being conceived and born is a miracle and a massive one. And guess what? You've made it here. Look into yourself and see what you really love doing. Don't be forced by parental or peer pressure into work you don't love because in the long term you will need to break out and follow your natural desires for work you love, which will always take you onto the path of success, financial or satisfaction-wise. Don't toil for years in work you do not like just for the money or the respect. It's not a good idea. If you're ever lucky enough to have the chance to build a business or to invest in things, always look at the downside not just the upside. This will help you to avoid dangerous mistakes and bankruptcy. But when you do see a profit, never look a gift horse in the mouth. Take it, especially if it's life-changing amounts. Don't hang on to your business until you look for exactly the right moment. Don't just look at the potential upside going forward. Look how some financial gain now will affect your life today and never look back and wish you had hung on for longer or invested more or taken out more. When it comes to your life partner and family and children, appreciate that this is a precious, precious gift and know that nothing is 100% perfect, but going along with them for the journey is precious, unique and irreplaceable. But don't be afraid to be solitary to reflect, to meditate on your own, to listen to the higher force within all of us. And always remember to breathe deeply. Your breath is crucial to calm and balance and reducing fear, which everybody has in them at times, before a key exam, before making a great speech, a crucial meeting, or before a family challenge or a battle. Breath is life. Obviously, appreciate the simple and beautiful things in your everyday life. Be the elegance of the new London buses, a hillside in the sunshine, the waves, flowers in a window box, a beautiful classic car or building. Stop and look at these. Never make money your God, because you will be running for the money horizon forever and ever. And however much you have, it will not be enough to satisfy you because there will always be someone who has much, much more. It will not give you satisfaction in the end. If wealth made us all happy, 
all rich people would be happy, but often they are not, not at all. Remember too, always to deeply, attentively listen to people around you in business and in family life. Just listen. Be in receive mode and not transmit mode all the time. And be careful not to gossip about people behind their backs. Challenge them head on if you need to. Don't create cliques. And probably most importantly, do your very best to treat all other people, meek and the mighty, famous and the unknown, as you would want to be treated yourself. This is, of course, challenging sometimes, but your inner little voice will guide you on this. You won't ever regret it. From Grown Up Tom. Thank you, Tom. And I thank you uh, again for everything you've given to me and the lessons you've taught me, especially the emotional lessons and the emotional intelligent lessons. So thank you, Tom. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub. It's full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come